if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you haven't already, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everyone, this is the King Williams podcast. Um, I know some people listen to Neighborhood Watch and say, what? Why, why does that sound different? Um, so what, what you should know is by the end of this year, all the interviews that I'm doing with Neighborhood Watch are actually going to switch over to the King Williams podcast. And so it's going to be a little different. It's going to be things like interviews, conversations, and historic deep dives. The Neighborhood Watch is going to be a podcast about neighborhoods. It's in the title. And it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. This is going to be really cool. It's going to be really a lot of like the stories that you've seen before, but not necessarily about Metro Atlanta. And what that means is deep dives, historical references, interviews with key people, but also um, just like a living archive, you know, and it's going to be 15 to 30 minutes each and every episode once a week. And so the Neighborhood Watch will be covering different aspects of neighborhoods and neighborhood life in Metro Atlanta. So I really hope you enjoy it. Um, But as of right now, the Neighborhood Watch will continue interviews as we've been doing before. But after the election, uh, whether that be in November or December of this year, it will pivot over into becoming a full on um, just a fun and historic look at different aspects of our beloved Metro Atlanta. But for right now, I really hope you enjoy it. So this is the first episode of the King Williams podcast and one of the few remaining neighborhood watch interviews. And so I really hope you enjoy both. This is obviously with um, Mayor Kasim Reed, a man who needs no introduction. He is running for his third term uh, of mayor of Atlanta after the abrupt um, announcement in May of our current man, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who isn't running. I will say I have a newsletter. It's called I am King Williams.substack.com. I am King Williams.substack.com. I do think in the case of this interview, there are two articles that you should read, which are a great primer into why we're talking about this. Um, one of which is it's called Atlanta is losing the narrative. It deals a lot with um, Instagram porn accounts, crime porn accounts, rather, um, and how that narrative of Atlanta falling into violence and despair and crime is not necessarily reflective of the data that exists. And so I think that's super important when we talk about this interview. And then there's also my general update in which I talk about uh, the Kasim Reed rollout and what that means. And also I, I compare Kasim's rollout to the 2013 Kanye West rollout of Yeezus. I think there's a lot of inter, uh, overlap on that one. I think you'll enjoy both, but but they actually do really work t- well together with this interview. And so there's three things that we did not talk about that I do want to mention before we get started. The first is we did not talk about his relationship with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. That was a call by me. Uh, we had a break in the interview and he was willing to do it. Um, he just, you know, I just didn't feel like it was something that we needed to talk about. So we didn't. So that was my call. So you guys can get mad at me. The second thing we didn't talk about um, was Cop City. And this was mostly because of time. Um, I had 45 minutes with him and I got this call at the last minute that it was available. So I did what I could and I rushed out and I got the interview. Um, And Cop City at this point, this was one week ago today. And so the vote didn't happen yet. And I kind of knew where the vote was already going to be. And 
while I do think it's an excellent question to ask him, and I think whoever's going to ask him in the future what his thoughts are, I think that's wonderful. For this in particular, there were some other things I wanted to interview him about ahead of that, so we just didn't do it. And then third is his indictment. Uh, the reason being is because sometimes we have to just be honest. I didn't necessarily have... I just didn't have the the enough knowledge and insight to really ask the questions that would be needed for something like that. And I think it's important sometimes as journalists, as people, you have to know what your strengths and what your limitations are. I could have done it, but you know, I wasn't prepared as well. And then also when it comes to the interview, as you hear, we're going in a different flow. And it just didn't feel like this was... It would have been such an abrupt turn that it just didn't feel like that would be the way to go about it. And so, yes, I think it is a fair and valid criticism that I should have asked that, but I didn't. Um, I think people like Rose Scott, when they do that interview, I'm looking forward to that one. I think she's much better at asking that type of question. Um, I will say also, when it came to this particular interview, um, Kasim and his team, they were very open to do this. And so I think for everyone, you know, just always shoot your shot. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And this is kind of how we got here. And so um, let me know what you think. You can always reach out to me at I am King Williams or at Watch the Hood on Twitter and Instagram both. So again, at I am King Williams or at Watch the Hood on both. And once again, I have a newsletter that would love for you guys to subscribe to. We're going to talk a lot with each and every candidate on the mayoral um, stage, as well as hopefully every single member of Atlanta City Council who's running for office. And so you can hear already our interview with Natalie Archibong, uh, the woman who tried to put a stop to Cop City. That's up now. My interview with Jason Dozier. He's running against uh, Cleta Winslow in District 4. And we have an upcoming interview um, as well with both Cleta and Jason's rival, Rogelio Arciera. Um, and so that will be out early this week. Um, we're also going to have an interview with another member of Atlanta City Council. And the following week, um, September 17th, we're going to have the Andre Dickens interview and so a lot of content is coming. So again, I am King Williams at Substack.com. If you love this podcast, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you heard it. Um, enough of hearing my voice. I wanted to say one more thing because of just where we are. Um, you hear some background noise and I apologize for that. I really do. But I hope you all stick through it. And thank you again. Good, man. How are you? Life is good. Yeah, no complaints. Okay. And so, you know, you, you're a man who needs no introduction, right? And so I do want to ask, though, just the first question. I got a bunch yeah. of questions from people online sure. and people who just email me. Sure. They want to know why now? Why come back for a third term? Um, why come back for a third term? Because I love Atlanta and my daughter's going to be raised in this city. And right now, 20% of the people in this city would vote to leave it. 73% of those folks would vote to leave it and create a new city of their own. When I was mayor, people were moving to Atlanta in droves. 71,400 people moved into Atlanta over the last decade. Emory University and the CDC raised their hand and annexed into Atlanta. Um, the, the communities um, in, in that part of the city, East Lake Country Club raised their hand, moved into the city of Atlanta, and now the city is at risk of breaking apart. And so every hard problem that you can think of today um, whether it is homelessness, um, affordability, transit, transportation, mobility, all of them are harder if the city has 30% less money. And so if the Buckhead community uh, votes in November of 22 to leave because of the level of crime and violence that we're seeing in our city, 
then our city is going to be weakened. And it's that child in Thomasville who goes to a school in the APS system that has less revenue, that has more challenges. It's that little girl in Summerhill um, who will have less options because the city uh, has less money um, to deal with the challenges that the city faced. Um, I had no intention of running for mayor. I went on Frank Ski's show more than eight weeks before Mayor Bottoms made the decision to move her life in a different direction. And literally the day that she uh, stepped down, uh, just decided not to run again, I had more than a thousand calls from folks asking me to run for mayor. Okay, and, and in I 20 days, we raised more money than any mayoral candidate who's ever run for mayor. We raised a million dollars in 20 days. And beyond the money, it's just the number of folks that I respect and whose opinion I value who call me. Uh, and so this campaign really is a call of the heart for me. Okay, so I got to ask, though. The environment is very different from when you ran in 2009, even sure. when you ran again in 2013. There's the macro things and there's micro. On the macro, the environment is very different politically than you it was. You said that three times. I know. We're gonna yeah. get, you have three different questions about okay. it. On the macro side of it first, we have a very different environment that's based on a lot of Trumpism. What do you do in particular to bring Atlanta back from maybe this encroaching threat of Trumpism into Atlanta politics? Well, I think that right now the biggest thing that you can do is to make our city safe without being an Uncle Tom or a Buck dancer. So you can secure Atlanta in a way that does not require being Trumpish. I think we need more police officers because our city has grown. So our city added 71,400 people. And so everybody is entitled to safety and security in their homes. And so you have to grow the police force. Right now it's between 13 and 1,400 officers um, with active. And that number of officers can't police a city of a half a million people effectively. And so the biggest thing that we can do to keep Atlanta together is to make our city more safe, but do it in a way that's consistent with our humanity and with our values. Um, when I was mayor before, I was the mayor that disbanded Red Dog, which was a very aggressive police unit. Uh, I was the mayor that decriminalized marijuana. I was the mayor that insisted that every police officer have uh, body cams. Uh, I was the mayor that banned the box. I was the mayor that paid City of Atlanta employees $15 an hour. And all of this happened before George Floyd was murdered. And so I think post 525, post the horrific murder of George Floyd, we actually have to train, train, train again. So one of the folks who is a dear friend of mine who has been offering a lot of guidance in this modern era, noting that it is different from when I served before. But there's a gentleman named Raz Baraka who's the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. And Newark dropped crime last year double digits and no officer on the entire police force fired their weapon a single time. When I was mayor of Atlanta, we had more than 1.6 million officer community involved interactions, officers fired their weapons less than 17 times. So you can secure the city and the number one, two, and three issue for everybody. It's not just black people, white people. White people and black people are afraid. Black women and women are driving around with their cars on E. 
the number of carjackings and car thefts is at unacceptable levels, and we have to bring these things down. Okay. And we have to do it, and we have to do it responsibly and with care. Okay. And so one of those things, though, in particular, that's kind of built into this narrative of Atlanta's crime being out of control on a micro level, are these for lack of a better word, crime porn accounts. And so there are a few, a lot of them emanate out of Instagram when they only show one aspect of crime and violence and debauchery in Atlanta. As do you, as if you are elected mayor, how will you address that? Because it seems as if now the notion of Atlanta for these people who check into Instagram, they check into TikTok that's only showing violent content may be against what you're trying to do as mayor. Yeah, see, I'm not talking about crime porn accounts. I'm talking about when my daughter is being dropped off at home by her grandmother and her car is robbed in five minutes and police don't come. I'm talking about when my mother goes to a Chick-fil-A for breakfast and then that afternoon that very Chick-fil-A was in a gun shootout. So I'm not talking about what folks are talking about on social media on Instagram. The fact of the matter is more than 155 people were killed last year. The fact of the matter is, as we sit here, more than 105 people were killed. And so I'm not into the entertainment value of any of this. I think about this in terms of the families and the loss of life as somebody that's loved when it's not coming home. Now, when I was mayor, seven out of eight years, there were less than 100 people who were murdered. So that matters. The crime rate was at the lowest level that it had been in 40 years. That matters because they're human beings. These are not numbers. It's not an Instagram story. It's a dad that's never gonna see his family again. One year, we had 110 murders. The next year, it was back below 100. So you have to manage these issues in a way that allows us to stay together. And so I think that you can add police, add training, open 33 recreation centers, make sure that they're centers of hope, keeping open till seven o'clock at night, Make sure that every team between 13 and 18 has a job every summer, six weeks a year, paying a $15 an hour. I think that we should have baby bonds in the city of Atlanta every time a child is born. The city should create a bond, and when that young person turns 18, they should um, receive a check. I think that we should have a pilot program for guaranteed income for between 250 families. I'm going to open an anti-displacement office it doesn't do anything but deal with people who are under threat of being pushed out for various reasons in our city. And I'm glad you said that because affordability, prior to the events that started last year, that was the number one issue was affordability, and the number two issue was gentrification. You're, you're running again. How do you actually solve this? Because now it seems as if the everyday Atlanta maybe can't even afford their current rent, or maybe in the future they won't as well. Well, there are two things I think that we need to work at. Think that Atlanta has 855 acres. First of all, we're 131.5 square miles. We have 855 acres. So I think number one, we need to zone the 855 acres and turn them over to NGOs, nonprofit organizations that specialize in providing affordable housing. We're really good at it. And commercial builders that will build within our standards so that you have a guaranteed price that is more than affordable. Typically in a real estate transaction, the dirt, the land, is between 15 to 25% of the cost of the project. If the city is providing the land, 
I can bring down the price of that project significantly and get a person who just wants a better future and a brighter tomorrow into that house faster. So that's the approach that I'm going to use. The city owns 855 acres in real estate. Fee simple. It doesn't include the land that the Atlanta Housing Authority owns. It doesn't include the land that the Atlanta Land Bank Authority owns. It doesn't include the land that APS owns. And so, because this should be an issue right next to crime, and I agree with that, we're going to push those units out and do that. Do what I described. We're also going to transfer it zoned. So if you were a developer, you're not going to have to go and manipulate the zoning. It's going to be sent to you in a fashion to build affordable housing in a rapid way. Right. The second thing we need to do is we built an awful lot of affordable housing, in my opinion, um, when when you see these high rises go up, and you'll hear that 10% of the units are affordable. But there's been no audit of these buildings. There's been nobody that ever went and looked. So if a, if a, if a project has 440 units in it, 44 of those units are supposed to be for working people. So the average rent in that building may be 2,500, 2,700, 3,000. But they're supposed to be rents that are 900, 1,100, 1,200. So that a regular folk person, new real estate construction, and we're going to audit all of those units, and my instinct tells me that working people aren't in those units. Okay. My instinct tells me that they're selling those units at market rate, renting those units at market rate, and nobody has ever knocked on the door. I'm going to knock on the door, and I think that that is going to create a number of units. And so that's the two tracks that I'm going, along with all of the traditional tracks. We're also going to use the scattered site housing approach, which we, um, we had uh, an initiative during my last administration where we allowed people who were renting public housing to buy it. I think we need to do a lot more of that. Okay. So we need to, when folks are, have been somewhere for years, so in the scattered site housing approach, if I built a house and you lived in it for 10 years and it was public housing for 10 years and you've invested and you've been paying on time, you ought to be able to convert that into ownership. And that's the way that I think it gives us a real opportunity to build wealth. But those are just some of the ideas I have, Jared. And so I want to stick on this notion of real estate, but now not necessarily on the residential side, but on the commercial side. And this is actually a section in which I would like for you to correct maybe some narratives about yourself that people may have gotten wrong. All right, so commercial real estate. Under your administration, we've seen a lot of big projects come to fruition. Mm -hmm. The first was the Tyler Perry deal. And so for some people, they call it, um, well, maybe it was a sweetheart deal, the Tyler Perry. What do you say to people who say that that was a sweetheart deal or maybe that wasn't the right deal? I think that they ought to say that and put their name on it. So a lot of people criticize the Tyler Perry deal. They won't go on TV and say it. Or sign your name to that if you really believe that. So the Tyler Perry transaction was number one. We hadn't gotten more than five bona fide offers, meaning offers where the person has the financial wherewithal to close the transaction. So the whole project was sitting there and it was rapidly deteriorating. The carry costs were between two and four million a year. By that I mean the money it takes to secure it, the money it takes to keep the water running and to keep the property operational. And so if you take that over a 10-year period, that number is between 30 and $40 million. 
We also didn't have jobs, economic activity occurring on that corridor. By doing the transaction with Tyler Perry, that campus is full of employment across a variety of sectors. We're not paying the carry cost on the transaction, and the city received $35 million in cash. So if you are a serious person, you know that the deal, while it may look like a $35 million transaction, is really more like a $70 million transaction. Because I got the carry cost off the books, I got the property back on the property tax digest, and I got an awful lot of jobs in a sector that's very important to Atlanta and the region. So if you, if you think of the 10 biggest movies in the world, five of them have been filmed in the city of Atlanta or in the state of Georgia because of the opportunities that we provide. And if somebody wants to criticize me for turning an old Confederate military base and putting that hands in the hands of a black entrepreneur, say it in public, creating one of the largest movie studios in the United States of America. In my opinion, Jared, that is the Atlanta story. There was no sweetheart deal for me. I didn't get anything out of the transaction. Didn't want anything but greatness for our city and dominance in a, an important place in entertainment. There are an awful lot of creatives in the creative industry that has been developed in the city of Atlanta. A range of jobs, totaling 34,000 jobs across the state that were stimulated because of the investment in Tyler Perry Studios. And most of the folks who offer that criticism have never had a job where they had any idea of what it takes to actually do these transactions. So it's really easy when you're in cheap seats at home to criticize these transactions. They offered me no alternative. Right? So nobody else in the last 10 years had the ability to buy that property. It's been sitting vacant for a long time. The vacancy was terrible for the neighborhood next to it. You can't really argue that the neighborhoods next to Tyler Perry Studios are now more valuable than they were before. Right? So that's the, you know, that's the response that I would have to folks. But you know, aside from Maria Supporter, I haven't seen a lot of people that will publicly go on the record and say that that was a sweetheart deal or a bad transaction. We're in a political season where people try to use an old Karl Rove technique. They take things that are positive and they turn them into a negative. Right? So selling that studio to Tyler Perry kept thousands of jobs in the city of Atlanta, took the asset off of the books, took the burden off of the backs of taxpayers, put it in private sector hands, and gave a national model to America of what is possible in the city of Atlanta. Okay. And so if somebody wants to be on the side of the argument, have them come on your show and sit at the table with me. We can we can set that up. Okay, let's set it up. But I do want to ask you though, is because this is like I said, this is about correcting narratives about you, right? And so one of which I know for sure, mm. it's slowly been. This is not your doing, yeah. but it has been slowly been attached to you. And one of which is the Gulch deal that got passed. And again, this is not necessarily you, but there are like slow people who are saying, well, what happened in 2017 when Amazon came? And also, so this is a two-part question. Um, and to, when the state of Georgia was trying to show off sites, a lot of people were saying that, well, could we put that on Kasim because he was the mayor when Amazon was trying to tour sites in Atlanta? And even myself was like, I don't think that necessarily falls on him because, you know, he's an outgoing mayor at that point in time, right? Um, and then the aspect of that, though, that people ask is that when it comes to that particular deal, the Gulch deal, if you were to be approached with a deal like that 
now, would you sign off on the Gulch deal? Mm, it depends. I'd have to review the, ter the terms of the current deal. So my administration set in motion the framework for the Gulch deal. It's a $5 billion project. And the city of Atlanta um, is great because mayors have always done multi-billion dollar projects in order to keep the city moving forward. The details of the Gulch deal would, were uh, negotiated by the current administration. So they wouldn't have been the same deal I negotiated because I'm a different mayor. Right, that's what I'm saying. Well, I want to correct that narrative because there has been like a slow chatter about mm -hmm. that. And I, I want to make sure that you yeah, get a so chance to correct that. I, I don't really want, well, I think the Gulch deal is a good deal. I believe mm -hmm. that it should have between 20 to 30 percent affordability. And I would probably have negotiated it differently. I haven't read all of the documents related to the Gulch deal. Um, because, as I said, I wasn't considering running for mayor, and I've been running for mayor for about 50 days. But, you know, these are narratives that you are talking about advancing. I don't know whether you got the memo. I'm winning this election. I'm in first place. So people are going to play politics. So in politics, you attack, attack, attack. But the Gulch deal at the end of the day is going to be a transformative deal for downtown Atlanta, and downtown should thrive. And it's going to improve property values across the city of Atlanta. Okay. And now I want the last question about commercial, about your legacy, which is a lot of people are saying that the last four years or so, maybe the city has done too much for developers and not necessarily be the individual. What will be different under your third term to make it seem like maybe the little guy in the small business actually gets a chance to develop in Atlanta? Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair criticism. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have, you know, a far more human-centered administration, and I'm going to use the skills that I have used um, in the past when we were in crisis. See, people just, because time goes by and folks have short memories. When I got elected, the city was in the worst recession since the Depression. President Obama was president in 2009. I got elected and went in in 2010. We were dealing with the worst recession since the Great Depression. And that's what I managed the city out of. And while, um, while some of it was strong and forceful, you'll find if you run a complex organization in crisis that you have to make decisions faster because the floor is literally dropping out of the bottom. But when I was mayor, I never laid off an employee, never followed an employee, never raised your property taxes, never raised your water rates in the midst of the worst economy in 80 years. So if you go by metrics, there is almost no aspect of the city of Atlanta that was not better when I walked out of office than when I walked in. Right? So if you own property in the city of Atlanta, the value of your property increased. People moved into Atlanta in a way that they never did before. And that impacts black wealth as well, because black people own houses in the city of Atlanta at higher rates than people do in other cities across the United States. Atlanta has the second largest concentration of black wealth in America outside of Washington, D.C. And so when you're leaving the city of Atlanta, you have an obligation to make sure that the city is a forward-leaning city. But having it to do again, to go to your question, I'm going to go slower. I'm going to be far more collaborative. I'm going to listen a lot more. 
and I'm going to use the power of the office of mayor uh, to protect folks. That's why I'm going to start an anti-displacement office. So, okay. the, for example, right now you have seniors being cold called to buy their homes, many of whom are black people, um, and they have no guidance. They have nobody who intervenes on their behalf. On their behalf, you have people's property being bought by ta for tax liens, or people knocking on the door and saying, "I want to buy your property for." $7,500 and it's a $300,000 house and they're behind on their taxes. They don't have anybody to call to help them. I'm going to create within the anti-displacement office uh, a team that monitors water cutoffs. Because when somebody's water gets cut off, that family is headed towards difficulty. Water gets cut off first, then the electricity, then that family's on the way to either a foreclosure or an eviction. So if you want to help regular folks, when you see somebody's water get cut off, if you've got a team that can go out and engage that family and try to find out what's going on, that's really changing folks' lives. And when I left as mayor, there was $200 million in cash reserves. I don't know what's left today, but that's where I would be using those resources. Much more human-centered, far different than before. And then regarding incentives, I don't think that there is a great deal of need for incentives in most part of Atlanta right now, unless you're focusing on raw affordability. And I've told you what the framework looks like regarding affordability. I think you ought to go to a developer. This is the value of the real estate. This is the city's expectation. This is the rate of either rent or sale we need. Can you achieve that? Can you bring projects out of the ground? I think there are going to be an awful lot of small and medium-sized developers that are going to win those awards. Okay, and speaking of which, all of these things we've been talking about is something that looms over this larger election than more than any it has been in a very long time. And this is Atlanta is no longer majority black. A lot of people feel as if, you know, what does it mean for the black mecca to no longer be majority black? And what does that mean for a black politician now? to have to lead Atlanta that's way more diverse and has a broader set of issues than it did even when you were mayor? Well, you know, I, I think it ought to be exciting. I mean, what we're experiencing is the Atlanta that we built becoming successful and other poor people wanting to be a part of it. So as long as you are aggressively protecting people who have been here for the entire journey, you then, then can't put up a stop sign into other communities who are finding what we have built and made and developed together attractive. So I don't live my life in fear. I have no fear in my body except for God and Jesus Christ. And so I think you just get out here and campaign. And so I've always said, I mean, they've since since my predecessor was running, folks were saying this was the last black mayor, this was the last black mayor. I think it depends on who the candidate is. Put up a good candidate, they'll get out there and they'll win. What folks aren't talking about is the diversification of everything else creates enormous opportunities. I mean, Lisa Cupid in, uh, in Gwinnett, right? Nicole Love and Hendrickson in Gwinnett, she's one of the most talented people, Lisa Cupid and Cobb, I misspoke. But Nicole Love Hendrickson is one of the most talented women in politics. And she's running Gwinnett County, and it's a billion dollar county. 
and um, Leader Abrams is getting ready to run for governor. And so I think a more sophisticated look is that there is a breadth of opportunities that I did not have when I was growing up that you will have. Right? I couldn't have gone and done business in Gwinnett County. You know, the, 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 the bull goose in all of this is the state of Georgia. So they've got a $46 billion budget. They spend less than 3% of that budget with people of color or women. And you've got Leader Abrams, who is well positioned to be the next governor. So I think that while Atlanta is becoming more diverse, the whole region is becoming diverse. And so the opportunities are going to spread. The other thing I think post-George Floyd is that you don't have to be indirect about helping folks anymore. If you want to help black women, you can just hold a press conference and say, I want to do this for black women. If you want to help poor people, you don't have to design some type. You can just say, there are a thousand homeless people. I want to help them, and I'm going to do it. And so I find that to be very exciting. So I don't think that the people of Atlanta should fear. And I think who will be the mayor of Atlanta depends on the talent of the candidate. Okay. What can a candidate do? What are their abilities? Elections always come down to something that a candidate does or does not do. And, you know, I think I know about this because I've been directly involved in more mayoral elections than almost any person alive in Atlanta. Right? So there have been, I managed Mayor Franklin's campaign. I managed her re-election. I ran myself and won. I got reelected myself, so that's four times. And then I supported Mayor Bottoms when nobody else supported her. That's five. And I'm running again, and I'm going to win. That's six. Oh, but one thing. All right. Um, one of the things that people have asked, uh, well, are going to want to know for the next mayor of Atlanta is going to be, how do you repair your relationship with Brian Kemp in particular in the, the statewide GOP? And my question to you is, how do you repair that relationship? It seems like it's pretty fraught now. Well, I, I don't have a relationship to, I don't have to repair a relationship. Um, I have worked uh, with a governor that I disagreed on about 80% of things, but on 20% of the things that we agreed on, like creating jobs for people and bringing jobs to the city of Atlanta, we worked cooperatively and we created, generated some of the best results that the city and the state has experienced in terms of job growth and job creation, which for most folks is one of the most important things in their life, whether they have a fair shot and a fair shake at the opportunities that they have. And so I've always understood, because I spent 11 years as a state senator and as a state rep, that the relationship between the governor and the mayor is essential for job creation and certainly for public safety because the relationship between the Atlanta Police Department and the Georgia State Patrol. And so while I'd, I vehemently disagree with Governor Kemp on a number of fronts um, regarding job creation and regarding the overall health of the capital city, I think we'll be able to, to find common ground. And when, when we don't, you know, you can, take an, uh, uh, you can take an affirmative position for what you believe without being against somebody else. You can just be for what you're for. So you maintain your own dignity, your own integrity, but you have to understand that the role of mayor is one of stewardship. And you might have a good day in an argument with the governor, but the governor has 364 good days against you that people don't see. Because a, a state 
without regard to what people feel is actually much more powerful than a city. A city is nothing but a notion of the state. And so you have to manage that relationship. I have long-standing relationships um, with people at the Georgia State Capitol because I've known them for 20 or 30 years. And many of them are in leadership roles and many of them still serve. And I always understood that the relationship between the mayor and the governor, Jared, is about the 333, 34 steps that the mayor's office is from the governor. So whatever disagreements you have, you all should, to the best of your ability, uh, work them out uh, confidentially and privately. And then you let your politics be your politics. I'm a Democrat. He's a conservative Republican. I can take a position as a Democrat. He can take a position as a, as a Republican. But on the, the small number of things you agree on, you can make massive progress. That's going to be my approach. And I'm highly confident that in very short order, the relationship between the city and the state of Georgia um, will be on a more positive footing. Okay. And one of the questions we've got to ask, I know we kind of mentioned it already a little bit. People want to ask directly. There is this movement about secession from the city of Atlanta with Buckhead. Yes, yes. Directly, what do you do to keep Buckhead in the city? Well, it's more than a movement. I mean, there's a referendum on November of, of uh, 2022 for a vote. And that means that in order to uh, encourage folks to oppose that referendum, you have to bring down the level of crime and violence that's facing our city. And it's it's not just for Buckhead. I mean, you know, my family doesn't like walking through a metal detector at Lennox any, any more than any other family. Um, I fear uh, for my family members' uh, safety when they're at a gas station right now, too. People that I care about are driving around with their cars on E, sending me screenshots of that fact because they're scared. The biggest thing that the mayor can do is to bring the level of crime and violence down, but do it with integrity and with a sense of, of humanity and this consistent and this displays an understanding that we're in a, we're in a post May 25 world and to communicate that to the police department. And I think that because I was successful doing that before and working through crises before, that I'm the person who is most capable of doing that again. I mean, you have to remember that the Eagle of Eagle raid occurred before I was mayor. It was my administration that had to deal with the fallout from that, change the culture. It never happened again. Um, Catherine Johnson was murdered in her home. My administration had to deal with the fallout of that woman being murdered in her home. So this is something that I understand how to do. And so we have to bring down crime and violence. We have to provide our young people with more opportunities than they've ever had in their lives. And we should. And we ought to feel good about doing it. Right? So the folks that sell water on corners, uh, they're not going to be allowed to do that anymore. But they're going to make more money selling water to the Atlanta city government than they ever made standing on corners. And so I believe in the politics of the soft and the hard, Jared. And so you can't just be out here being tough. You got to be out here spreading opportunity in a new and dynamic way. And I intend to do that. Okay. 
And one question uh, people want to ask too, this is another hard question since we're sticking on hard questions, which is what do you do about homelessness now? Because the homelessness problem is much, much bigger in the last four years since you were last mayor. So how do you address a, a much larger homeless problem in the city of Atlanta? Well, it's bigger because we were more effective at reducing homelessness. It's factually, President Obama's administration awarded my administration an acknowledgement that we had ended veterans' homelessness. That's President Obama's administration. That's, it's not a Republican. So we took extraordinary care of our veterans. If there are three homeless people, one out of three of them is a veteran. So it was my administration that had the $22.5 million homeless opportunity bond that was then matched by private sector grants that raised $50 million to fund uh, homeless housing. What has happened with that? Where is it? Where's the activity? And so my sense is we just got to get back at it. We need to have a scattered site homelessness approach. I don't know if you're familiar with the Imperial Hotel on Peachtree Street. My administration did that. It's 88 units of housing for homeless people. It's a beautiful building. It is well maintained. It has wraparound services. It's a model, in my opinion, for what we should be doing all over the city. And so my feeling is, is that we will um, acquire units of between 15 to 30 units of housing. We will make them best in class. We will include wraparound services so you can um, have alcoholics counseling, psychological counseling, job counseling, technology counseling, all in a unit. And I think that that will change the outcome for homeless people, and it will significantly reduce the number of homeless people. We also need to partner with our hospitals because a homeless person who goes to an emergency room, that's a $1,500 visit. If they spend the night, it's 15000 So they have an interest in working with our continuum of care to bring down homelessness. And so uh, it's something that I look forward to working on. It's a problem that when I worked on it, I enjoyed it very much, but I won't be talking about it because homeless people read. To the extent that you do a good job of helping homeless people by providing them with services, that number goes, that number, the number of people that get on a bus and come to Atlanta goes up. And the more people um, that you help, it goes up. So that's going to be my approach. And oh. it's actually a part of the job that I'm looking forward to. Okay. And I have two final questions for you, and I ask all my guests. So every guest I've ever had, they always have the same two questions I'm going to ask you, which is the first is, what is something about you or, in this case, your previous administration that people misconstrue that you want to correct? Um, that we care more about companies and things than people. No, that's just not true. Folks did better when I was in office. They were safer when I was in office. Their property values went up. There were more jobs. We took on the worst recession in 80 years, shoulder to shoulder with one of the greatest presidents our country has ever had. And so um, where I think you have a lot of insight is just narratives are formed. Well, narratives are formed when there's no counter-argument. 
So if people just say things and say things and say things, an object in motion stays in motion until it's met with a contrary force. Well, when I left office, I was at peace, Jerry. I mean, I had wanted to be married since I was 13 years old. I met Ambassador Andrew Young when I was 13. He took an interest in me and mentored me, and when I got elected mayor when I was 40, he was sitting by my side, and I found out I was mayor. So when I left, I was comfortable with folks saying whatever they wanted to say, whether it's about the Tyler Perry deal or this or that and all of the rest of the gulch. I don't. I wasn't going to live my life fighting a, a battle. I was going to live my life being with my family, raising my daughter. And that was very much what I was doing. What I saw was the fact that if something doesn't happen in 18 months, the city that we all live in won't have the kind of opportunity for you that I had. When I was 28, 29 years old, 30 years old, I was running a mayoral campaign. I said I was going to be mayor when I was 13. There was no moment in my life wherever I thought I wouldn't be. And it's because Atlanta was a place with no limits. If these things continue to work in the way that they're working, the kind of opportunities that I had are going to be diminished. And the most powerful phone call I got, Jared, was from a group of folks who were in their 30s and early 40s, but mostly 30s. And they encouraged me to run from there because they said that it was not right for their generation not to have the same kind of shots and opportunities that I had. Because they were fearful that because the city's breaking apart, Buckhead's moving, uh, crime and violence is becoming the national narrative for our city, not being the home of Dr. King, not being the home of John Lewis, not being the home of CTV. People think about our city right now, they have a different mental impression. And so I'm on your podcast today because I have a deep, profound love and respect for your generation, despite folks' characterization of me. And I am very effective at winning. And I believe that uh, I'm open because I'm 52, I'm not 40. And I don't really believe that, I think once you deal with crime and violence in a way that's consistent with our moral center. That the economy that's right under that is incredible, Jerry. And so I intend to do this job. I, I hopefully plan to preserve Atlanta as one unified city. And then I'm going to get out of the way and go back to doing what I was doing because I was pretty happy before I decided to run from it. Okay. And then that brings me to the final question I have for you, which yes. is, why should people vote for Kasim Reed for mayor? I think people should vote for me because Atlanta needs a strong, steady, experienced hand in this moment of time that has actually dealt with the problems that we are dealing with right now. Right now, we're having a surge of death and violence, and we need someone who can push back against that in a way that's consistent with who we are as a city and return our city to a sense of normalcy. If God forbid you were having heart surgery next week, um, you would read up on the heart surgeon and you would want someone that has performed heart surgery before. 
I have governed Atlanta during a crisis, during some of the toughest times the city has ever faced. And I left it in the strongest financial condition that it had been in, in a generation. And I left it safer than it had been in 40 years. And so I offer myself um, to be mayor during this difficult time. If times were good, if life was good, if the ship was going in the right direction, I don't think that I would be the right person for right now, and I wouldn't be running. I publicly stated eight weeks before any of this ever started that I was speaking as a citizen and had no intention of being mayor of the city of Atlanta again. I got my eight years. But what I tell folks all of the time is, I may not be the person you want to have a beer with, but I'm the person that'll get you home so you can have beer with somebody who you do want to have it with. And that's what's on the line right now. And with all of the respect and affection that I can muster, none of the other people who are running for mayor have ever done anything remotely like running a city of Atlanta. None of them. None of them. And so now, with 18 months to get our house in order, it's not the time for inexperienced, untested leadership that has no similar capability to what I've demonstrated over an eight-year period of time. Okay. Thank you. Oh, you know what? There is one question I forgot to ask you. Yes. It's a question I ask everyone, which is, final question, what's making you happy? What makes me happy right now is Maria Kristen Reed, my daughter. Okay, there we are. Uh, thank you all once again. This is a very bon a special bonus episode. We have uh, Kasim Reed on this episode. Thank you all for listening thank today. Thank you, Jared, for no, having me. No, thank you for showing up today. No um, question. And so once again, you all, if you haven't already, please like and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast yes. and wherever you listen to it. Once again, if you have more questions for the, uh, Kasim Reed, please let me know, and I will make sure that we get them answered.